You're listening to School Crack, Ireland's first and foremost Magic the Gathering podcast. I'm your host, David Wolf, and I'm joined here by... Kieran and Alan. So, lads, how are you? Wonderful, wonderful. Um, it is a... I, I got rained on quite significantly um, this morning. Um, uh, we, had, we, we, we immediately went from nice sunny weather to the torrential downpour uh, here in Dublin uh, within the space of an hour. So great crack. Uh, we had a few lovely sunny days this week, but now I think we're just back to, to, to March, March, uh, March weather. Lousy um, March weather. So I think everything's over there. Yeah. Um, actually, this time last year, we had uh, the big snow. But, uh, the, the, when Dublin was, was, when the whole country shut down for a few days, that was uh, this time last year. That was mental. Yeah, it was such a magical time. Um, I remember being like, I remember it was like, I think it was on like a Wednesday evening. Like we just got word that you know, there was a lot. I got word that there'd be no work. I had to be working from home uh, Thursday and Friday. So um, me and my housemates at the time went just we went to the uh, the pub Blackbird uh, in Rap Lines, and it was kind of complete snow everywhere. And it was like the pub was packed full of people, um, yeah, all like wearing kind of you know heavy snow gear and. Uh, it was just it was just a, a great buzzing place and just outside you could just see the world coming to an end and uh, it was it was really like it was like um it actually was just like you know this is the last day of of you know the last day before the Armageddon uh, and everyone's just uh, you know out in the session beforehand um it was just it was just a very strange Wednesday evening but, um, it was pretty good times crack yeah uh, in Hanoi in the past week I'm not sure if you're aware but uh, I was or I have been the closest that I have ever physically been to Donald Trump because he was here having a chat with uh, Kim Jong-un. Oh, yeah. Well, he was up up the north. Well, he, yeah. Or was it? did it happen in the south? No, no. I, I'm in Hanoi, which is in the north. It's not in North Korea, though. No, it was Vietnam. 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 They, they met each other here. Oh, sorry. They met in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought they met in Korea. No, they, I think they wanted to meet at a, in a country in the middle or something. Yep, makes sense. Uh, <laughs> when you say the closest you've ever been, I thought you were going to t- tell a story of how you know, we try to, to you know, reach out and you know touch his face or something. No, not that close. I never even I never saw him or anything like that. Uh, but like it just, <laughs> I, I was thinking about it just the other night, and I was just like, oh, he's like <laughs> probably like a kilometer away from me or something like that. It was weird. And there's like loads of security. Yeah. Like the army was walking along the side of the streets with metal detectors. Loads of roads were closed. It was really inconvenient to be honest. God. But uh, nothing. Perfectly, perfectly. Yeah, I mean, nothing in particular happened. As far as I know, it was a successful peace summit. It's a new world we live in, where the president of the United States has meetings with the president of North Korea. I don't think it was successful at all. I think it was a disaster. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he like they like cut it short and like stopped talking to each other because they couldn't agree. Well, that that just goes to show you how uh, how well the Vietnamese press reported it. Oh well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Notoriously unreliable lads. Um, all right. <laughs> well, some big news also happened in the uh, world of magic. We have a few different things to talk about today. So continuing on from last week, uh, the big news coming out of Mythic Championship Cleveland, Mythic Championship 1, was that uh, our the, the person that we were backing, Autumn Burchett, they won. Yeah, Boom. so delighted. Couldn't be happier for them. Yeah, it was really, uh, really um, you know, great last few games to watch. Um yeah, obviously, yeah, you know, uh, Autumn played like, very, very well, and you can, you can really see, especially in, in the final, uh, you can see how they're just a master of of you know, the mono deck. Uh, you know, they've been playing for so long. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's a yeah, great, great, uh, great new story for for Magic and for uh, for you know UK Magic and Magic in general. Yeah, the whole top eight was great as well. I gotta say, I, I like I'm not I'm not usually all that bothered about watching through like the entire top eight of uh, of the Mythic Championship, the Pro Tour, or whatever. But I watched most of it this time, and I'm really glad I did. I thought all the matches were were really really good, and uh, Autumn's matches matches especially were super entertaining to watch. They were, yeah, as Al said, just like absolute master of their deck and uh, just constantly making plays that like was were kind of like a bit confusing to 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 see as a spectator and coverage was was taken a bit aback by a lot of the plays as well but then like five turns later like it became obvious like what autumn had been playing around the whole time and, and you know kept certain cards in their hand to uh to make sure they didn't lose to certain outs from their opponent and stuff like that and it was just yeah absolutely masterful 
Yeah, so in one of the uh, like one one play in particular was at uh, Ottoman side brought it out. Um, uh, Tempest Jeans against uh, against uh, Esper Control, which was something that you know the commentary was was you know, kind of confused about. Then I think in the games itself, you could see uh, you know, why exactly they did that because uh, it was really kind of forcing the, the control player. I think the Esper Control player would be kind of you know, keeping removal you know, in their hand, waiting for a Tempest Jean. And I guess if there's no Tempest Jean to wait for, then you know, they're kind of playing you know off you know, less. Um, Less efficiently left, less uh, um, yeah, effic- efficiently as they as usually would. Uh, that was really nice, uh, really nice play to see. Yeah, definitely. I started doing that. I was playing the deck a little bit after the the Mythic Championship on Arena, and I I tried doing the same thing against Esper whenever I played against them, and it did feel like the right thing to do, especially on the draw, it, just because it's the mm-hmm. most expensive card in your deck, and uh, like you're both loaded up on these counter spells after board, and it does it does feel very very difficult to ever like resolve a Tempest Gin uh, and have it connect. So I could definitely see it because you can basically win with any threat, even just like whatever one one. You know what I mean? So it's a it, yeah. it does seem to make more sense to just like stick with the cheaper threats and then you know have more space for. Uh, for counters and stuff like that so i think that was very clever yeah absolutely yeah fantastic play by autumn and um yeah again sad to see uh reed duke and lsv not make it although i do have to correct kieran because kieran you said last week that lsv had never won a pro tour but he actually did oh sorry he has won a pro tour yeah he, he won uh paris with elves yeah yeah but he still has sorry the worst top eight conversion rate of any player i think oh doesn't okay. he because now he is, uh, or maybe it's any player that's won a pro tour. It must be he has the worst conversion rate because he's won one out of ten top eights or whatever. Okay, uh, it's just because of the absurd amount of top eights he has. It's kind of <laughs> only possible. Yeah, it's kind of not really a negative thing at that point. It's like, whoa, well, you're so good, but you're just you're not that that little extra bit good. Yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> you know the way people talk about Kai and how ridiculous it is that he won whatever it was, four or five pro, tier, pro tours in like two years or whatever. Yeah. It's like, if things had gone differently for LSV over the course of the last couple of years, he could have like almost equaled that. You know what I mean? With the amount of top eights he had. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even even yeah. if you're just thinking back to the, the previous pro tour before this one, like the, the finals coming down to that last match with his horrible, horrible hand. Yep. Which we'll maybe never see again when they change this mulligan rule. Who knows? Yeah, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, still, still something we've yet to see be broken. I, I'm, I'm sure people must be testing it right now. Um, but the yeah, the amazing run from from Reed Duke and from LSV. I think probably that that top eight from Reed Duke puts him in Hall of Fame contention. I would imagine next next ballot. Yeah, I'd imagine he's he's going to get voted in fairly easily. As soon as he's well, the the thing was before he wasn't eligible, right? Because he hadn't been playing for ten years. I I think he is eligible now. I want to say, although I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Also, who knows what's going to happen with the Hall of Fame in the future? It might turn into the Magic Hall of Fame. I mean, it can't be the Pro Tour Hall of Fame anymore because there are no Pro Tours. So maybe it's just going to be the Magic Hall of Fame, and there might be categories for other things except outside of tournament performance. Who knows? Um, but yeah, stack top eight. Autumn took it down. Amazing job. Uh, fantastic winner's interview. Very emotional. Beautiful outpouring of love on Twitter afterwards. Fantastic to see. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was just great. It was just great. Really positive. Uh, I loved reading. I can't remember who it was, but uh, someone had an article of reactions from trans and non-binary players to, uh, to Autumn's win. And uh, and what it meant to them, you know, and and how it made them feel and stuff like that. I'd, uh, maybe we can link that in the show notes. But uh, that that was very nice to read. I thought it was really cool of someone to put that together. Yeah, that would be that. That's one that I'll definitely link in the show notes. That that was really good for for me to read as someone who you know hasn't had those experiences in my life. Um, just to really understand. Well, probably not even totally, but to have a glimpse of of understanding of of what it actually means to see someone like you in a position of such you know mastery and control over this game and you know it's you know for for people like us for white men <laughs> we you know we see ourselves at the top of all levels of things basically so it's like really normal for us so we we almost can't understand what it feels like to see someone like us for the first time in that position you know and i really feel like it's a big win for wizards as well because this is kind of almost the coming to fruition of, of, a, of a promise that they've had for quite some time now in their cards, which is a really admirable thing for a company to do 
which is to be including, you know, representation on their cards of minority characters, you know, of different races, of different uh, gender identities and things like that. So overall, just a super positive thing. Definitely. And I just want to point out to anyone, uh, any begrudgers out there that like Autumn wasn't given, you know, the opportunity to play at this Mythic Championship because of like diversity or representation or anything like that you know they like they won their rptq for the spot like it wasn't like uh just it was it was handed to them or anything i know they did get an invite to the mythic invitational but uh as did you know half the participants that are there but uh no this was this was all hard work and skill to win this pro tour from autumn yeah absolutely yeah and then uh, yeah and then i've seen how excited autumn was to um to to top eight to qualify um in the rptq i was at um you know at the start of yeah at the start of february uh, whereas, like, it's kind of like it's it's you know one thing is celebrating because you you made it to the Mythic, Mythic Championships. Uh, and it's like you know, you know, little did they know, little did they know, uh, a few weeks later they'd you know take it down, and then and now and now you're qualified for all of them. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. All right. Um, moving on from that, I guess we'll talk about another kind of big tournament that ended uh, a month long tournament. Uh, so this was the February Mythic rankings i guess you would call it on mythic on uh on mtg arena um so you know a month ago whatever it was wizards announced that the top eight players of mythic constructed in magic arena in february at the end of february would get invites to the mythic invitational which we just mentioned and so that that race concluded and we do have a final list um i don't know who all these players are but um, some of them are well-known pros, like, for example, Andre Strasky, uh, Thiago Saparito. Uh, I think there's a couple of unknowns, but yeah, this, this was, uh, this was kind of crazy. People were playing, playing out of their minds, but I suppose the, the idea that, um, most of the list were kind of at least semi well-known players from before does kind of give credence to the idea that people weren't gaming it. People weren't account sharing or whatever well i hope not anyway i mean i would assume that they wouldn't risk anything by account sharing um so yeah so that that's kind of a positive to come out of it so like so many pros doing well at it um but yeah the final hours were were really quite hilarious uh i was watching uh dave's stream as we shouted out dave last week dave c and uh he was he was he was doing well he was up there for a while he, he was in top 100 and then I think it was about an hour and a half out. He uh, he he lost the match, fell out of top 100, and kind of threw in the towel. But uh, and just had had fun for the rest of it. But there was a couple of like top 20 competitors uh, in hanging out in Dave's stream, you know, talking about how they were getting on. It was a exciting time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dave finished 189th uh, in the end. Um, but yeah, I guess this was yeah, really the end. You know, once he during that last half hour. Um, but yeah, we really, it really was it was a fun thing to to, to be a part of, kind of a. Yeah, seeing the clock tick down and seeing, yeah, like uh, you know, yeah, people chiming in on on Dave's chat saying, you know, where where, where they were on the ladder. Um, and then I guess like, yeah, I, I, I guess it goes to show you. I think you're talking about what, uh, Andre Stratsky, uh, who was um, fourth or fifth, and then just decided to stop playing you know, for the last hour or so because, um, yeah, because you know, if at that at that point, so I think probably is the correct thing to do is just to not play because a, a loss will, will make you drop down so much. Uh, which I think that kind of you know that frame of thinking and that kind of strategy really just highlights. Uh, how terrible uh, this system was. So uh, it's, it was it was a fun uh, you know, few days, uh, a fun last few hours, uh, but I'm glad to see it now replaced with something else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I really hope they don't do this ever again. I think it encouraged unhealthy amounts of playing. Like now you can just get a Mythic, try and stick in the top 1,000 and you'll be fine. You can play your World Mythic Championship qualifier, whatever it is. Um, not quite as unhealthy levels and not quite as crushing when you lose. Yeah, I finished outside of the top 1,000. I I was in I was in the top 1,000 for a while, and I was like playing. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to make it, but I'll see how high I can get. And I took a loss, and I went down to 99. And I was like, yeah, I'm done, done now. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> Al, by the way, you've brought the snow with your comments earlier. Look outside your window. No, it, no, it that's... literally just started snowing. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Whoa. Uh, hey guys, remember remember that time when um. Oh, I think it was like five years ago. It rained uh, uh, craft beer from the sky. <laughs> the IPA just fell from the sky. Uh, yeah, we bottles. all remember it well. In bottles, <laughs> Jesus. That, work? that was lethal. <laughs> Hundreds of people died. That's bizarre, yeah. It literally did just start snowing. Well, oh, well. it uh, end up like last year. 
Damn it all. Yeah, I actually, uh, I actually, I also accidentally brought my laptop home from work, so um, it seems like I subconsciously was uh, pre- preparing for uh, another um, storm, Emma. Is that what it was? Beast from the East? I think it was two things. Um, there were no. two different ones, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry, back to magic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think I feel like there's a meme a meme to be made of like, a, I don't know, I think it's a linear format, I can't remember what it was, but like, it's something along the lines of, oh, well, that was fun. Let's never do it again. Um, that you know, sums up how I feel about this uh, rank system. Yeah. Or I mean about this um, yeah, chase for the top eight. Yeah, I think uh, may- maybe they could do it again once a year if they have the... Like if the mythic invitational becomes like a once a year thing, I don't know. They could do it again, but definitely not on a regular basis. Yes, yes. So I'm just reading up here on Twitter. The person who came, I think, sixth, Eduardo Annunziata. Uh, they made a Twitter account just after they top edited, just to uh to be able to talk to everyone. Uh, so they said, "It is me. I just made a Twitter account. Not a very social person. Sorry. I'm very excited for this. I still can't believe it's happening." I have never played a GP or a PTQ or something like that. I would love to talk to you as well. He's the coast. Oh, so, wow. So one of our top eight players here has never played a GP or a PTQ, which is pretty cool. That's like definitely a, a new wave of uh, competitive players showing up at Arena. What? A... Yeah, that's, that's actually it's something. Yeah, it's something I kind of thought about before of like, yeah, maybe because actually, no, maybe this is, maybe this is nonsense because uh, it's always was the case on Magic Online. But I guess it's like there probably are like a large number of people who just can't get to GPs or can't get to Paper Magic Games. Uh, for whatever reason, um, but uh, yeah, so then this is also a perfect you know way in to um, go way straight to the top, uh, I guess from playing at home. Yeah, pretty awesome. But yeah, as you said, let's uh, let's never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel I, I think I think this I think this invitation is going to be um, a big success in terms of maybe they will. I'm presuming that is the case. Uh, you might see something like this again. But. Well, I think um, I mean all these streamers are going to bring their viewers with them, right? They're all going to be hosting. The mythic invitational on their channels and stuff like that so i think it yeah yeah should be a big success for them and you know that would be great more eyes on arena would be really good yeah yeah definitely one thing that illustrates how how awful this tournament was was one, one of the things that uh, one of these kind of top 20 competitor dudes said in in the chat uh while i was watching dave's stream i think it was a guy called searsist and i think he was around 30 at the time uh, like rank 30 or 32 or something like that and he won a game and went down a rank what yeah. oh my god a single i mean someone someone jumped him in the meantime still oh my god <laughs> yeah that's the problem with it showing your right like your placement in the top of thousand and not your actual rating because obviously you couldn't lose rating after winning a game but you could end up lower on the rankings if if more people have gained more rating in the meantime yeah it, yeah, that's very depressing. Utterly insane. And I think there was also another situation with um, not Brad Nelson, but Brad Nelson's brother, Corey Baumeister. I think he won a game and stayed the same rank, which is you know, all, all, almost as bad. Yeah, it, it's just, but I mean, that's just about uh, what they're choosing to to show you in terms of like the visibility of your of your rating, right? Of course, yeah. But that's still awful and what a terrible feeling. Yeah, it doesn't feel good, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine like you get out a very, very close win after a long, grueling three games, and then uh, <laughs> being in the same position. Yeah, or lower. Imagine that. And also, this was another side effect of of um of the way that this was structured is that in the last like two hours, you started to see loads of mono red decks because people just wanted to get in as many raw games as they could in the final mm. amount of time or whatever. I don't even know if that's a good strategy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's what was happening. Yeah. God. All right, well, moving on from Magic Arena and the race for top eight that will hopefully never happen again, uh, we have the announcement of a new product. So Modern Horizons was announced this past week, and it is a new set. It's uh, something that people have speculated on for a while and, and wanted for a while, I think, but uh, Wizards are finally doing it. So it's uh, it's their innovation product for this year, which means it's kind of their it takes the it takes the spot of like the likes of Battle Bond or Unstable or Conspiracy from previous years. It's draft focused, but it's a it's a set full of cards for modern, as you would imagine. But there's a bit of a twist on Modern Masters. So Modern Masters has been has been discontinued. Of course, Modern Masters was a set full of reprints. Um, modern Horizons will have reprints, but they will be cards that have not been printed in modern. So. These are cards from legacy 
or vintage, like from before the start of modern, which is eighth edition. So before that, and or from commander sets, set, and then they'll be legal in modern. Yeah, it could be cards from uh, from supplemental products as well that aren't modern legal. Yes, good point. Yeah, so like things like commander um, that have uh, vintage legal or uh, legacy legal, commander legal cards um, might also be in this set. Yeah, and another really important part is that it will also have new cards, completely new cards designed for modern. Um, so this is a kind of a, a new, interesting take on a supplemental set. It's something that people have wanted before. Uh, we're never really quite sure if it could work. And now Wizards are finally doing it. What do you guys think about this decision and how it's going to impact the format? I think it's I think it's a really good idea. I think it's very difficult for them to to make much to to shake up modern too much at the moment, even if they wanted to, without having to like ban stuff or unban stuff, which is not always what you want to do. Because normally it's only like in a standard legal set, there'll maybe be like one to three cards that make an impact in modern like and occasionally there'll be literally no cards that make an impact in modern although i think i think the past couple years pretty much there's always been something that ends up in a modern deck and from every standard set but yeah this this is i think going to be a really good thing for the format like my understanding is that they are erring on the side of caution in terms of power level so it's likely going to be kind of a lot of like quality of life upgrade type cards it's not going to be like insane new cards that like uh you know create totally new decks you know and, and completely shake up you know what the top tier of the format is it's just going to give people more options and stuff that, that's what i would imagine from this uh yeah that's right yeah because they kind of they in the um in the wizard stream uh, where, they, where they announced it, say they looted that um basically that they're, they're almost kind of considering decks that have you know tier two or three they're kind of new tools for 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 tier two or tier three deck um or even kind of decks that you aren't on radar at all uh, which I guess we'll see ourselves when we get into the actual cards. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is um, a very um, uh, yeah, exciting set to look forward to. Uh, yeah, like 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 said, Kieran, like I think this is going to be a, this could potentially have a huge impact on the modern format. Um, kind of uh, almost as much you know as an impact that you know, a banning or unbanning would have um, in terms of you know you know um, you know a, a quick immediate change uh, shake up uh, to the format. Um, so excited to see what we get. Yeah, it'll be cool for like newer players who who want to get into modern. Say if like they just print some cool, I don't know, elves or merfolk or something like that. So, you know, some tribal cards that are in you know kind of tier two, tier three modern decks. But you know, this will make them a little bit more powerful, and and people kind of know where to go in terms of if they wanna if they wanna put that deck together, what they have to do. And generally, those tribal cards as well are monocolored, so it's going to be cheaper than a lot of other modern decks if you want to buy into it and stuff like that. So I think it could be very good for that. Yeah, get some new slivers. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, I think you guys summed it up pretty well. So do you want to just take a look at the new cards? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yes, absolutely. Oh, so, uh, the first one that they previewed was Cabal Therapist. So it's uh, black for a 1-1. One, one uh, it's a horror with uh, Menace. And it says, at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, you may sacrifice a creature. And if you do, you can name any non-land card, and then your opponent reveals their hand, and... They discard all cards with that name. So basically, it's the flashback mode of Cabal Therapy, uh, stapled onto a creature, so it's repeatable. Uh, but of course, it's not an instant or sorcery, um, so it doesn't synergize quite as well with um, uh, Young Pyromancer. Um, well, yeah, seems like an interesting card. It's cool. I, I The first time I read it, I thought it was at the beginning of, of combat on your turn, because I just skimmed it, and I thought, oh, that's cool, you get to use it the turn you play it but you don't you have to wait till your next turn before this triggers the first time yeah which means it is quite slow um but the effect is very powerful like in a tokens deck like if you're against some kind of maybe this is a sideboard card against control or something like that and if you're able to if it's able to stay on the board a couple turns in a row you're just going to take your opponent's hand apart very efficiently yeah I'm, yeah yeah definitely um if you could do it on the turn that you played it like if you played on turn one and you're on the play then you don't have you don't know what your opponent is playing. Of course, you can just not do it. You can just decide not to sacrifice the creature. But uh, I don't know. Maybe they wanted to avoid that uh, that possible gameplay of like just guessing what your opponent is on based on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part of Cabal ther- Therapy, though. That's true. It's the, yeah. the blind therapy. But yeah, so, but I mean, even later in the game, then say like you already know, say you, you thought sees them and you already know what's in their hand and then you play this. At that point, you still have to wait until your next turn before you can take the card from them, you know? Yeah, and as well, it's like if you play this on turn one, 
the next time you can play a creature is turn two after this is triggered. So the first time you're going to be able to sacrifice a token to it or something is turn three, probably. So it is very slow. Yeah, yeah. And I think on, on you know, by then, by, by turn three, turn three, the most boring cards to take out your opponent's hand that might cripple their uh, strategy. You know, already too late for that. Karen's already on the table. <laughs> you're all, yeah, exactly. All yeah. In terms of Karen. <laughs> uh, the art is awesome. I'll give it that. That is true. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, the it's a very cool callback as well to Cabal ther- Therapy. Obviously, a cool card that a lot of people love. Um, do you guys see any decks that this goes into in Modern straight away? Because I, I like you both have more experience with Modern than me. I guess like Black White Tokens would be like a fringe deck that I could see you playing this in. If you you know you play like Sauron and Lingering Souls and Gideon and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's the really one. Yeah, basically, yeah. Lingering Soul, Lingering Souls deck, um, which I guess uh, is probably where the next card goes in as well. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're talking about black white, well, the next card is very white and also makes tokens. Uh, although they're very large tokens, it's a uh, Sarah the Benevolent. So Sarah finally has a card, and she is a Planeswalker, of course. So she is a two white white for a legendary Planeswalker, Sarah, and she comes in with four loyalty. So um, Gideon at Live Zendikar. Um, you can plus two creatures you control with flying get plus one plus one until end of turn. So she's first of all she's Gideon Alive Zendikar. Next she's favorable wins. Uh, you can minus three to create a four four white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. So she's also Sarah Angel. And then minus six you get an emblem with if you control a creature damage that would reduce your life total to less than one reduces it to one instead. So she is also worship. So she's four cards in one. So it seems good to me. I gotta object that definitely it's definitely Sarah Aviary rather than favorable wins on the plus two. I think oh, that's okay. the flavor. I don't even know what what is Sarah Aviary. It's a it's a world enchantment that uh for three and a white that gives all flying creatures plus one plus one. Ah okay that uh it's like one of the really old cards yeah. Okay Fla- flavorfully that makes a lot more sense. Also converted mana cost closer. Yeah flavorable Although, wins. Yeah favorable wins is uh kind of does the same thing for a lot cheaper now which is kind of less cool but yeah so what do you think uh sarah the benevolent well first pick it in draft if i'm drafting the set oh yeah i think i feel like this card i think represents a, a great design space the set can explore because this is definitely um maybe the same cases for couple therapists couple therapists too or these are cards that will be busted in standard and um, very very powerful for standard so it's, it's good that we can get them into modern without um yeah without, without warping uh you know another format um yeah so i think it is a solid rate you know even even if all it does is come in a minus, it's yeah, four mana, four four blind white angel vigilance, which is uh, yeah, maybe not great, great for modern, but not, not always going to be great. But it's still um, you know, worst case scenario with the card. Well, I mean, the planeswalker is still sticking around at that point, so they have to, they still have to like, yeah, 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 save you some life, yeah, yeah. So that, that is it, yeah. And then once you take up your boom, getting five in the air. Yeah, it's um, worth pointing out as well that this uh, ultimates the turn after it enters the battlefield, which is very rare for a planeswalker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Or you can go plus minus minus as well. That's a a point that I was that I was thinking about. Like, I think that's the most abusable mode is the like just plus once she survives a turn without taking any damage, and then you can just minus six and have a worship uh, that can't be interacted with in any way because it's a it's an emblem. Um, and then once you have a creature, you just you know you're never going to lose the game then really. Um, so I think that is the most abusable mode, but I think it's kind of hard to. You know, to for have to have a planeswalker sit and play for for a turn without something happening to it, I think is kind of hard to do. And also, I think just coming in and making a Sarah Angel like four four flyers for four are not even even if they come with you know there's a planeswalker attached to it next turn are not really playable in modern. So I don't super see this fitting into anything any deck. No, it's a weird one because it's like the, yeah, the only time you're gonna get to plus two and then minus six it is probably against decks that don't really care like you know against blue white control or something they'll just let you do it because they're planning to just kill you with jace ultimate anyway so they don't they don't care about damaging you um yeah i don't know i don't i don't really see this card making a splash in modern either i mean you can play it on play it on turn three off a noble hierarch or whatever that that makes it seem a bit more appealing but you can do that with every card so (laughs) yeah yeah, I think on, on, the, on the same point you made, it's almost like you know, the time you want the emblem against something like you know, Asek or Mono Red, it's like, well, if you're surviving until turn five, you've already done something right. You're already probably already winning. Yeah. Yeah, that's And yeah, uh, yeah. We mentioned playing Gideon, Ally of Zendikar. Like, that's probably just going to keep you alive for longer against Mono Red anyway, right? 
You can just make yeah, it yeah. Two, two turns in a row. Yeah. Yeah, and Gideon is better in multiples, I guess, as well, because you can do, get the emblem from him straight away. Um, like, at first, when I looked at this, I was like, oh, a control card, because of the it's a planeswalker, but you get a creature to block with, and so it can protect itself. Then I was like, okay, but actually the plus and the ultimate don't do anything for control, really. Um, so, oh, it's just in a weird space. Um, I will say, though, that like it has a, a an absurdly high amount of loyalty, so... I do think it would be hard to kill it unless, like, if you just drop it and plus it and you have literally nothing on the board, the opponent would have to have a sizable enough force on the on their side to be able to kill it straight away. Yep, true. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, once it's at six here, I'm going to minus twice, which is yeah, pretty, pretty decent. Yeah, the plus just effectively does nothing most of the time, I think, is the issue. Could, could you build a deck around it so that it does something? So, like, like Al was saying, um, Lingering Souls would probably be good. I don't even really think so, because it's like the like you're plussing because you want to keep this alive and like get up to the ultimate, which means that you probably don't want to be attacking with your creatures, and this only lasts till the end of your turn, so the only benefit you get from it is attacking with your creatures. Yeah. I guess, I guess if, you, if you've, you know, probably if you are Lingering lingering Soulsing, um, you know, you're, you're probably, uh, this probably will survive uh, backswing uh, at six. Maybe you're just happy to attack. I guess. All right. Well, yeah, but then, like, what? You've attacked two turns in a row, and you've done four extra damage. That's not worth a card. That's true. We'll we'll brew it up now, right? We'll go. Um, we'll go healers. Birds of paradise. The Kitesel freebooter into lingering souls into Sarah the benevolent. No, that's not very good. You do birds of paradise yeah. into lingering souls into Sarah. Okay, so we're absent. Attack for six, five. Yeah, we're yeah Abzan at least. Probably blue as well <laughs> for spell qualler. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the, the card is very good, or it looks very good in limited. Um, and it, you know, could see some cyborg play in modern, could rejuvenate some kind of a deck in modern. Again, we don't know what's in the rest of the set, so there could be some shakeups. Um, what about from the side of reprints from legacy, vintage, old sets into modern? Does anybody have a a favorite that they'd like to mention that they would love to see printed? Counterspell. That's all I want from this set. Just yeah. Counterspell to Modern. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think it would I be mean, fine. Kind of... <laughs> I think it's a pretty safe bet. Like, Counterspell is not too powerful for Modern. No, it's yeah. not. It would be It would be great, I think. Yeah, well, it's, there's plenty of cards I want reprinted, but I don't want. Um, I don't know, to, to get, get a bit, to put on your conspiracy hats, conspiracy, your tinfoil hats. Uh, you know, we have this new Mulligan change that's going to make um, you potentially make combo decks more powerful. So, you know, it's a very good card to combat combo decks that are very, very good. What is it? Force of Will. Force of Will. Uh, yes, that is true. I really don't think they'll print Force of Will into Modern. That would change a lot of things. That's fair. That is also true. Uh, yeah, I don't think Modern is quite at the level of needing Force of Will. Like, I think anything that you could make an argument for Force of Will needing to be in the format is probably just something that needs to get banned in Modern. Yeah, yeah, so that's it essentially. Yeah. I, I think if there was if there was turn one combos that are reliable, um, yeah, banning them would be the solution rather than yeah, printing an answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of feel. You know, like I, I guess uh, they they also want to keep legacy and modern like separate. They don't want. Oh, I'm sure they don't want modern to just be like legacy light with the same kind of spells in every deck. Like if Force of Will was a modern, every blue deck would have yeah, to play it. brainstorm. Yep, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think it's cards I wouldn't like to see. I- I'd like to see any of the uh, kind of strong Nixie Burn cards uh, make it into the set. Um, any one would be fine. Fire Blast? I think Fire Blast is not fine, no. No. <laughs> Maybe not Fire Blast. Uh, Price of Progress? Mm. That'd be too good. Probably. Maybe that'd be too good. Chain Lightning, I think, would also be too good. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm-, I'm more so just doing wishful thinking um, <laughs> rather than what actually could make it into the, into the format or into the, into, yeah, into modern. Um, I think Chain Lightning would be okay. It's just a worse Lightning Bolt. Yeah, I was going to say Chain Lightning yeah, would, be, yeah. would be fine. Yeah, maybe that'd be fine. I would like to see, uh, and I actually think this is a pretty safe bet for the set, I would like to see Diabolic Edict. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I think that would be a really good sideboard card for Modern, uh, and it's definitely not too powerful, and there's just no good Edict card in Modern at the moment, really, so I think that would be a good one. I would also like to see Cabal Ritual. I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I think Dark Ritual is is probably too good. Wow. Yeah, Actually, I don't know Cabal Ritual. What what is Cabal Ritual? It's a one and a black uh, instant 
add black, black, black to your mana pool. If you have threshold, you add black, 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 black to your mana pool. <laughs> Five black. Okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty decent. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's better than Dark Ritual when you play it, but Dark Ritual is definitely a more powerful card in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, but it would be nice, I think, for Black to have access to a good Ritual card, because at the moment they're all red in Modern, and I would like to see Black be able to do that. that would... Yeah, yeah. I think that um, for me, I would like to, because I don't really, I don't know Legacy cards that well, so I'm kind of thinking more towards the, the Commander cards that came in. So something like um, Clusterstorm or maybe True Name Nemesis. True Name Nemesis might be too good. If you print True Name Nemesis, you have to print Toxic Deluge as well, right? Or uh, Cancel Judgment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I, I wouldn't yeah. like to see either of those cards, to be honest. I think Storm isn't good enough in Modern that you need to print such a strong hate card as Clusterstorm. I think that would be just kind of a bummer for Storm players. And then, yeah, True Name is just no fun to play against, so I wouldn't like to see that either. Yeah, the Trinity Nemesis, even though maybe there are, you know, you could argue, oh, there are some answers in Modern for Trinity Nemesis, but like, I think it's just fundamentally a mistake of a card that was um, clearly not designed with a you know, four competitive uh, one, 1v1 play. Um, so it's, it's it's just, let's just get, no, let's, let's get rid of Trinity Nemesis. Trinity Nemesis is cancelled. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I agree. You, you just want to ban it in Legacy instead of printing it into Modern. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this comes out a new ban list for, for Legacy. For no reason. Uh, I, I just hate the card. All right. Well, I'm sure there will be endless specu- speculation between here and there um, on what's going to be in this set. One thing that I thought was cool that I just wanted to mention before before we move off this in this set is uh, kind of also continuing on from from what you said, Kieran, about how for the last few years they, they've put they've had a few cards or one or two cards every set um, that made a shot at modern i think that this in some ways is the payoff of that because i think they did that with a lot of intentionality like play design and even before play design like with things like fatal push like they knew that they were trying to design something for modern and then you even see other things that are like way more obvious like fatal push obviously was excellent and standard but like things like alpine moon or um what was the other thing that they printed the infernal Infernal Reckonings, like the Black Exile colorless thing, things like that that didn't make a splash in standard were obviously intended for modern. You know, this this product really is the place for those things. Yep, definitely. I'm, I'm really excited to see what's in the set. I think it'll be really cool. And hopefully... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, so sorry, I was just like, it'll be as well. It's, it's, this is going to have a pre-release, which uh, we, we've never seen with a um, supplemental, uh, what do they call it, innovation products. So uh, yeah, and, and this pre-release is going to be draft. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah that's June awesome. And 9th. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, that, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Hopefully, it'll be a great draft format as well. I mean, I think they've done pretty well with the previous couple of master sets, so I'm assuming this should be a decent draft format on the same kind of power level, hopefully. Um, and the fact that it's a draft pre-release is pretty cool. Yeah. All right, so let's enter the arena. Ba, ba, ba. <laughs> you should get a, you should get a gong. You know, a gong for whatever... For... Oh, I don't know how to make gongs to end. Is that a gong? Probably not. No, that was definitely not a gong. That was very un-gong-like. Bong. That better? Yeah, that was much better. <laughs> Maybe I can go right. to like a pagoda nearby and get a, an actual sound effect of a gong. Let's <laughs> get one of those little desk ones, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so this week on Enter the Arena, what are we doing? Uh, this is uh, Sick Reads and Tells in Paper, paper Magic. Yes. So we wanted to talk a little bit about how to read your opponent or how to get some information about what your opponent has in their hand or what their plan is based on what they're doing with their body language or how they're holding their cards or just how which cards they play. And so you can kind of deduce what they have in their hand based on that. So you can do some of this on Arena and some of it is kind of unintentional. I kind of feel like they they don't even want this in Arena, but... uh, Due to the way the kind of full control mode works and, and setting stops, you will automatically pass unless there's some way for you to give a response. So, like, for example, if you are playing a red deck and you play a mountain on turn one and then it automatically passes through your whole turn, your opponent can be pretty assured that you don't have a shock in your hand because it, it would have stopped and you would have had to click through each phase if you had a shock that you could play because there is a legal target, which is the opponent. 
Uh, in the same vein, if you want to try to conceal your shock, that's kind of hard to do because you have to like mash enter as fast as you can to to try and pass through your turn. Yeah. So there is some amount of that that you can do in arena, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what you can do in in real life. Yeah. So I guess the one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is uh, and this is basically the, this these are as much avoid doing these yourself as much as uh, looking out for your opponent doing them. But it's uh, in modern. Whenever anyone draws a Tarmogoy for a Snapcaster Mage, the vast majority of players will immediately look at their graveyard after they draw the card. Um, and and so you can you can get a really good idea for when someone has drawn a card that cares about their graveyard um, by if they glance at it immediately after drawing their card for the turn. And it's something that if you're if you're playing cards like that in your decks, you should avoid doing. You should try and always have just keep keep in your memory the cards in your graveyard or like look at the graveyard you know, always at the same time in the turn cycle on your upkeep or something like that. So it's not obvious that uh, that you've drawn a card that is going to interact with your graveyard as soon as you do. Yeah, and, and, and I, you kind of see, and it's, sometimes this happens in standard as well. Like I said, at the moment, Crackling Drake or Enigma Drake, um, it, it's really obvious to sell when someone draws one of those. Um, was it this time last year, it was Torrential Care Hulk as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, I, I, one, thing that, one thing that comes to mind, this is a next level play. I think it's uh, Patrick Chapin's book. Um, if you do, if you if, if you don't know what's what's in your graveyard and you draw one of these cards and you want to check, uh, one thing he suggests doing is uh, asking your opponent uh, what life total they have you on, um, and just you know during that kind of brief discussion count to you know use that as a chance to count to say your fetches in your graveyard or or uh, you know burn spells in your graveyard or whatever it is, um, you know while you're really just checking to see uh, how big your goal is going to be. Yeah, the passing it off as a as a chance to just kind of take stock of everything, like oh what's the life totals, who's at what. How many cards you have in your hand? Yeah, um, just kind of do it as part of all of those things, and then that it kind of hides it a bit more. We also see this in standard now with uh, things that interact with your opponent's graveyard, or not even just in standard, but like for example, Dire Fleet Daredevil. So if you draw your card for the turn and you go to your opponent, what's in your graveyard? Or can I look at your graveyard? They might think that you have a Dire Fleet Daredevil in hand. Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I'm, I'm I've been playing Dire Fleet Daredevil recently, and I feel like it's something that I'm I, I haven't got used to doing yet. It's always uh, you know if you're into the mid to late game. And your opponent has a stack of cards in a graveyard. Um, it's you know, usually I'd have to ask to reach over and then like leaf through the graveyard to see what's in there, which is making it very, very, very obvious. Obvious. Uh, I guess it kind of goes on here. I think something that I probably could just in my in my head just keep track of all the spells that are in, or that are in there over the course of a game. Um, but obviously that's something you have to be doing from the start of the game. So yeah, if you're playing the dire for the devil, just uh, go dedicate a little bit of brain power to um, just being aware of what's in your opponent's graveyard. I mean, often you just have to keep track of whatever the best spell in their graveyard is, right? Like the like the Lava Coil or the Vrasic. Sure, yeah. You're just like, okay, that's there. If I draw a Dire Fleet Daredevil, I can play that. But of course, there might be some other situations where you might want to play their Thought Erasure instead, even though you have access to the Vrasic's Contempt. So like, yeah, it, it's yeah, yeah. good to generally keep in your mind, if, you have, if you're playing a Dire Fleet Daredevil deck, to just generally keep in your mind what's, what's in your opponent's graveyard without really obviously like picking up and looking at it or you know obviously asking the opponent can you have a look at their graveyard uh for your own uh play i guess you do see a lot of people separating out their graveyard into different stacks so like again for crackling drake someone will have all their spells in one little stack and then all their other things in another stack like all their dead creatures or their lands or whatever in a different stack and the the good thing about this is you won't lose track of it uh some people even use a dice beside it to to be totally clear and you see that in the coverage of the mythic championship um but the downside is that your opponent always has it there as well i mean it is free information they can look for it if they want but you are kind of giving up the ability for them to forget about it by doing that yeah something, something that kind of it's it's um it's yeah that, that's kind of the, the pros and cons balance you know it's like you're are you, are you going to get um is the edge you get from having a dice out keeping track of everyone that's in your graveyard going to give you more of an edge than it does with the opponent or are you better off just um just keep track yourself? Um, I guess I'd usually kind of tend towards uh, keeping track yourself. And um, this is something as well people talk about with like as I was maybe moving a bit off topic, but uh, stuff like um, people do things like leave a dice on top of their their library to remind them of upkeep triggers, which obviously that's something that, that works all the time. It's always going to work. But uh, I prefer to just to train my force myself to to just do it you know myself manually and um, just force my brain to to take those extra steps. Yeah, I think that from yeah, you're you're definitely you're definitely right there in the way that you're thinking ultimately. But I do think that especially when you're starting out or you're just getting used to that kind of competitive level play of like declaring 
all your triggers and making sure you don't miss stuff and you know there's no taxi boxies um i do think like visual cues like that or physical cues can be so much more helpful to you because the 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 disadvantage of missing something is really really big whereas the advantage you get of your opponent not knowing is small enough so i think it is better to start out with those things like having a dice beside the number of spells in your graveyard or putting the dice on top of your library to you know so you remember to do something in your keep. i think it's better to err on that side at least at first and then when you feel like you don't need the training wheels anymore then you can uh, start doing it doing it live yeah yeah i like that approach too yeah uh, there's a, a fun piece of trivia for um uh, on the point you made about your graveyard um you know, having your separate graveyard uh, it's actually a rule that um you're only allowed to do this if you're playing in a format using cards from Urza Saga and later. Um, so you can't do that in a Legacy Vintage. Yeah, it's true. It barely ever comes up, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's there's, there's a few unplayable cards in that, those formats that uh, care about order of cards. Or Which is very silly. Yeah, so obviously, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's obviously fine to do standard modern. All right, does anybody have any more tips? Uh, I, I don't know if this is really a tip, but for me, I, w- I would say don't try and... Don't don't rely on on thinking you have a read a read on people's body language too much because this is this is true for poker and other games as well and you always hear about you know oh you know pro poker players they can always tell you have just based on you know your body language and this is how you have people like wearing sunglasses and having their hoods up and stuff while they're playing uh, so they don't give away you know physical tells or whatever like maybe a few people in the world can do that and like. They certainly can't do it against everyone they play against. It's probably against a small subsection of people. And even then, they're probably not all that accurate. Like being able to tell what people have through their body language is, I think, you, you just can't do it for the most part. Like, so don't don't like risk games based on the fact that you think your opponent, you know, like blinked twice when they drew their card or something like that. Like the yeah, graveyard yeah, thing is the graveyard thing is different because they actually have a reason to do that and they're kind of giving something away. But, you know, when we're talking about, like, James Bond, you know, uh, villains bleeding out of their eye or whatever, it's like, that stuff doesn't really happen in real life. So don't worry about it too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think it's um, it's something that, like, it's definitely the most entertaining part of Magic or Poker to, to talk about or, or, or read about or, or see. But, um, yeah, like, 99.9% of the time, the match is going to be decided by solid, solid play, solid gameplay, which is kind of a sad truth, but, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Yep. Um, I guess here's another tip in terms of uh, bluffing in general. I guess what we're talking about isn't always bluffing, but you know, if you're playing limited and you have a two-two and they have an O three, uh, you know, and it's turn turn three or whatever, just always attack your two-two into their O three because you'll be amazed at the amount of times that the your opponent doesn't block and you get two free damage. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, yeah. I mean, it's something as well when when you do that, and then as also the, the next step from that is it will be consistent with your story. So when you do that and you attack through, um. Your opponents think, think, thinking, all right, they have some kind of yeah, combat trick in their hand. Whereas you, so you need to, if you want to, if you, if you want that impression to stay in your opponent's mind for the rest of the game, you have to commit to that. Um, you know that line you took, that bluff you made, where you're you're thinking, make your opponent think you have this card in your hand. Uh, you know you need to be consistent with that story, or otherwise, you know, the next turn, if if you know, if, um, if you make a play, uh, you know, the next turn it makes it very obvious you don't have a combat trick. Uh, well then they're they're going to know straight away. Well the. The absolute yep. best thing is when you make that play and then you convince them you have a trick. And then they, for example, next turn play a 3-3 and then you don't attack it. So they're like, oh, well, he mustn't have had a trick because you don't. And then the next turn, you draw the trick and you make the attack <laughs> and they block. Oh, I love it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 these are kind of the... Um, and, and that's so... Obviously, it's looking in that situation where you, where you drew the comic trick, but that's you... You um, gave yourself a chance to draw that out, and you gave yourself a chance to by by that first stack. You made um, that particular out more. Um, you, gave, you, gave, you gave that one out a higher impact uh, in case you would draw it, and then we did. Yeah, you're going to get most value out of it. Yeah, and then I suppose another thing is, uh, and Kieran has a story about this: is don't uh, don't play into things that will lose you the game when you're ahead. Yeah. So this isn't, I guess. This I'm not sure if yeah it's fully on the topic of like bluffing or tells or anything like that, but just no matter how far ahead you are, just always just always think about the cards you can lose to and um and, and just don't lose to them basically. Uh, so yeah, I was playing a game of Rivals of Ixan Limited before. 
I was playing a blue-green merfolk deck, I was super, super ahead on board. I had uh, Kumina out, who's the, the mythic merfolk that, you know, draws you cards and gives all your merfolk counters and stuff like that. I had, like, uh, I, and I just had this massive board apart from that. And I'm drawing, I think I had, like, Kumina's Awakening, maybe, as well, which is, like, the one-sided howling mine. I, I can't remember exactly, but I was super far ahead. And every turn... I just had this huge board. My opponent had like a decently sized board, but I was just attacking in with like one unblockable Merfolk uh, every turn and putting counters on it and drawing extra cards. And that was it. So I was winning very, very slowly, but I just thought the only card I can lose to here is Settler Wreckage because that was the only Wrath effect that was in the entire format. And it, it was it was essentially the only realistic way I could lose the game was if I attacked too many creatures into a settler wreckage. So I just said I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to attack with this one unblockable merfolk every turn for the next you know ten turns or whatever and win the game that way. And uh, my opponent was getting visibly a little bit frustrated. And uh, I, and then I started thinking I think they actually have this settler wreckage because they because they were getting so annoyed and they were going. Why don't you know it's over? Why don't you just attack me? Why it's a good game, you know? And I was like, and I said basically, well, if it's over, you can you can feel free to concede. I'm just going to keep attacking with my with my one block of a merfolk, you know. And uh, and I did, and I eventually I won the game. And uh, they never showed me the card, but I found it afterwards. I think maybe from you, Wolf. I think you mentioned it to me that the, the opponent did in fact have settler wreckage in hand the entire game. And I didn't know that. I hadn't seen it during the draft. I hadn't seen it during game one of the match I played against them in the draft. But I just thought, and it's a rare, right? So so. It's it's kind of unusual that you would you would play around a rare that you've never seen, but just in this case, it was literally the only card in the format that could lose me the game. So I just decided I'm not going to lose to it. Um, I'm just gonna just gonna make this very boring and attack with one small unblockable creature every turn. I love it. Yeah, which must have been very frustrating for my opponent. I gotta say, and I, I got oh yeah, but like see, in one way, it's kind of funny, and it's like it's it's like it's funny that I played around that card having never seen it, but like I was in a situation where. I had no reason not to play around it because I was that far ahead. Like in a lot of other situations, you couldn't do that. Like if I was only a little bit ahead in that game, I might still have had to attack with more creatures and I might have had to play into the Settler Wreckage. But you got to identify the times where you absolutely can play around something and then you should. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's something, as I was on, on, on the other side of that coin, it's something you see a lot of new players uh, you know, um, do incorrectly is basically play around cards that, don't exist and um, you know what one one quick way to lose a game is to is to um you know commit to what's playing around a card that your opponent doesn't have and um, so i think in your example that's perfect that's a yeah it's like it's like uh you you were you were you were still ahead even when you did play around settled wreckage and after for base so i yeah, know as, as a thought experiment let's say if your opponent had a bigger board and it was like a racing situation uh even though let's say if you still thought they had settled wreckage if you can't afford to play around it then you know you probably you probably you probably would lose that game by playing around it you know, given it a different board state yeah, exactly. And you see that in standard the whole time with that specific card, Settler Wreckage. It's like, you know they might have it, but you still need to attack with, you know, three creatures this turn because they're just going to get too far ahead in their control deck if you don't put them under that amount of pressure. And then you get hit with the Settler Wreckage, and in that situation you go, uh, you know what, I had to do it. I calculated what I had to attack with. I know I knew they might have had it, and I, uh, I still felt I had to make the attack anyway. So those are those are two yeah. different situations. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that situation, I mean, you, you basically usually what happens in those type of situations is that you just never would have won anyway. So you're just ending the game a little bit earlier, which is better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Then the very odd time, yeah, if you've got it. they don't actually have it and you just win the game on the spot. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so, but the important thing there, I guess, is that it wasn't a tell and I wasn't trying to read my opponent and put them on anything. It was just a case of determining what options would win me the game and what options would lose me the game, regardless of, you know, my opponent's body language or how they're acting or what I think is in their hand, you know, based on, you know, how, how they're shifting their shoulders when I move to combat or anything like that. It wasn't about that at all. It's just about thinking through your opponent's outs and just not giving them to them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess, I guess which said, yeah, which perhaps back to the point of how important solid um, how yeah, just solid gameplay is always going to be is going to always going to be more important than a and tells and i guess there is you know a possibility possibility that let's say if you thought you had some kind of soul reef on your opponent and then you're like oh he he shifted in his seat so he definitely doesn't have settled wreckage uh you know you using that line of thinking over solid gameplay would, would would lose you a game in a situation like that yep for sure so i don't know just uh for the most part you like play the same as you would on arena when you're trying to think through that stuff you know what i mean on arena you can't really tell if they have settled wreckage or not so like don't fool yourself into thinking that you can just because you can uh you can look in your opponent's 
you, you can look at your opponent face to face because you probably still can't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. If you could, then I mean, you'd probably want to be using those skills somewhere else instead of magic. <laughs> I hear the FBI are hiring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're not. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for Enter the Arena this week. And that's going to wrap it up for the show as well. So if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to email in an idea for Enter the Arena or you'd like us to talk about anything, you can uh, email us uh, skullcrackpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at us uh, at skullcrack on Twitter. We will have some extra turns after the uh, the outro music, but uh, it's, it's pre-recorded by Al this week because he came up with a great idea that he just had to record straight away. So if it sounds a little bit different, uh, that's why. All right. See yeah, you guys next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so I was planning on uh, having another uh, line for Soul Showdown for extra turns this episode. Um, my plan was to find the very worst uh, legacy legal cards that could be reprinted in the modern via Modern Horizons and have you two take turns guessing the rules text. Uh, but in my study, I came across one card that may shake the foundations of everything we know about magic. And I decided that you guys need to hear, need to hear about this instead. The card in question is Wood Elemental. Released in 1994, Legends was the 7th Magic the Gathering set and the first set to be not considered part of a block and the first set to be sold in booster packs. This is an important part of the puzzle to remember as we go deeper into the rabbit hole. In this set, there are 121 cards printed at rare, one of them being Wood Elemental, which is 3 green for a creature elemental with power toughness, star star. Its oracle text reads, as Wood Elemental enters battlefield, sacrifice any number of untapped forests. Wood Elemental's power and toughness are each equal to the number of forests sacrificed as it enters the battlefield. This is clearly unplayable limit and requires a significant level of support to be even passable and constructed. It's not even an interesting design space, nor does it even play an important role in the MTG lore. In every possible aspect, this is an objectively terrible magic card. But then why? Why is it on the reserve list? Established in 1996, reserve list is a list of MTG cards that will never be reprinted in order to preserve their value in the secondary market, and today contributes to many format staples retaining inflated prices, locking many casual and competitive players out of the game. Amongst reserve lists are the most powerful and sought-after cards in Magic's history, Ancestral Recall, Jewel Lands, Mox Emerald, Jet, Pearl, Sapphire and Diamond, Time Walk, Volt and Twister, Drop of Honey, Bizarre Baghdad, Library of Alexandria, Tabernacle of Pender Vale, Chains of Mistopheles, and the fabled Black Lotus, which this week had a copy sell for over 160 $66,000. So why does Wood Elemental deserve its place in the highest echelon of magic cards? Why does this terrible card get to stand amongst the Paranine? Was it simply because it was added to the reserve list amongst other cards from Legends? No. The answer is far more complicated than that. See, Watsi's original policy on reprinting was to never reprint with Black Border any previously published magic card which had identical art and card power, allowing cards to be reprinted with white borders. However, this did not prove popular and the reserve list was born. Watsi have in the past pushed the rules of the reserve list. Commons and uncommons from limited edition removed from the reserve list due to popular demand. The voice of the people was being heard. The reserve list had to go. Through another loophole, versions of Gaia's Cradle, Survival of the Fittest, and Yogmoth's Will were reprinted. Although these cards were on the reserve list, a policy allowed wizards to reprint quote-unquote premium versions of reserve list cards. Then, reserve list card Phyrexian Negator was reprinted. A semi-playable card from Urza's Destiny reprinted in foil. For the first time, collectors fought back, and in response to negative feedback, this premium loophole was closed. Head designer Magic Gathering Mark Rosewater would later say that they were experimenting with pushing a loophole, but it went badly and they promised to never do it again. But Mark Rosewater admitted that this was an attempt to phase out the reserve list. Wizards of the Coast want to polish the reserve list. Competitive players want to polish the reserve list. Many large stores that directly profit from the reserve list also want to banish the reserve list. 
but there is a silent majority of player uh, there's a silent majority of people that want to keep it around a secret sect of magic collectors profiting from the game in one hand while the other hand holds a dagger to the back of formats like legacy and vintage it's the illuminati of magic controlling gaining from the reserve list while we tapped proxied underground seas down the pub but what if Otzi could find another way to fight back a foil for Exiting the Gator was the centre of the last reserve list controversy, a card of moderate strength and minor relevance to the lore, but perhaps this was too important of a card to fight back with. If only there was a reserve list card, so utterly unplayable, so flavourless to the game, that reprinting it would weaken the spirit of the reserve list while not upsetting the second-hand market. It's wood elemental. This four drop could be the key to our salvation. It could be re it can't be reprinted as foil like the Gator was. So if only but maybe it could be if there was another way to get it into circulation. So remember those packs I asked you to remember? Legends was the first set to be not part of a block and had a large focus on legendary creatures. This bears an uncanny resemblance to a recent set, Dominaria, which had legendary theme and marked a breakaway from a standard block cadence of other sets that came before it. Another point to note is that Legends was the first set to come in booster packs. You know booster packs come in? Booster boxes. Booster boxes which have remained unchanged all through Magic's histories from Legends all the way up to Dominaria. But Dominaria was the first set to contain unique biobox promos. The reserve list will be abolished by Wizards. Reprinting Wood Elemental adds a Modern Horizons biobox promo. This is why Wood Elemental exists. This is why Wood Elemental is on the reserve list. It has always existed as a paradox, a card terrible yet unattainable, rare yet undesired. Its very existence contradicts the spirit of the reserve list. The buy box promo from Modern Horizons will abolish the reserve list. For Wood Elemental is a true nexus of Magic Gathering's fate.